Hey there, and welcome to the Pseudo Show, brought to you by the Destination Linux Network. Today, we're excited to bring on Charity Majors, CTO of Honeycomb.io. We discuss application observability, engineering culture, and the future of IT operations. All that and more on the Pseudo Show. Welcome to the Pseudo Show, your home for all things enterprise open source. I'm Eric, the IT guy, and joining me every episode is my caffeine-infused co-host, Brandon Johnson. How you doing today, buddy? Doing great. I think I'm on coffee number five. So lots of fun. Oh, it's a, it's, it's a light day today. <laughs> oh, no, that's a heavy day. Gosh. Uh, but I, I did switch to decaf, and uh, now I'm... Uh, settling down and ready for this uh, interview. Well, maybe, maybe it's just end of quarter where you get up around the seven or eight range. <laughs> yeah, sometimes not, sometimes not that much. How are you doing, Eric? Well, you know, we, we talk about end of quarter, but with things winding down for the year, I've been really excited to get my hands dirty. I've been, I've started studying for my RHCE, my Red Hat Certified Engineer exam, and I've been working on spinning up my home lab server, which we haven't had a chance to talk about on, on the show yet, but uh, I, I think we've got an episode coming up here in a couple of weeks about that very thing. Just just a quick tease. Can I, can I tease everyone, Brandon? Yeah, why not? Uh, I, got, <laughs> I got some new, new equipment coming myself. So I've got my home production services, it, you know, air quotes, running in Podman containers and my workshops and tinkering, anything like non-production I have running in virtual machines. And I've got it all tied together using Ansible. So you, you mentioned you had some some new toys on the way. How's your network redesign going? Oh, it's uh, going well. New hardware, a little bit of new networking equipment, some 10 gig, just making it all work together right now. Going to be doing an open shift cluster, uh, which will ultimately replace my overt cluster for all my uh, demos and, and my home automation and file syncing workloads will all be running on OpenShift now. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I've, I've got plans for, for an OpenShift cluster, and uh, we'll, we'll just see how crazy I get because... You know, satellite and Ansible Tower are already in place, or at least, you know, almost. <laughs> so. Yeah, and I've already moved Mist over to this, which is, of course, managing my DigitalOcean infrastructure. While our home automation workloads are running on metal at home, this show runs on our sponsor, DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. You can get started on DigitalOcean for free with a $100 credit by going to Dio. .co slash DLN. We talk almost every episode about some open source project or some issue we're trying to solve. DigitalOcean Marketplace is one of my first stops when I want to try out a new project. In about 60 seconds, I can deploy any one of dozens of staff-maintained one-click apps. Want to try out a new configuration for WordPress? One click. Need to spin up a Jitsi server for your next remote D&D game night? One click. Need to get a LAMP server out ASAP? One click. The Marketplace is dozens of different applications ready to deploy in moments. Just pick your desired application, answer some quick questions about droplet size and data center region, hit create, and sit back. DigitalOcean will spin up a droplet in moments and even provide you with some top-notch guides on how to get started. Well, some people may sit back. You'll probably go get more caffeine. <laughs> As an avid listener of the Pseudo Show, you can get your hands on a $100 credit. Just head on over to do.co slash DLN and sign up today. Thank you so much for DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Pseudo Show and the entire Destination Linux network. 
So not too long ago, I was reading a blog post about the future of operations. It really spoke to me and a lot of what we talk about on the show. So I decided to reach out to the author and invite her on the show. I am so pleased to introduce Charity Majors, the CTO of Honeycomb. Welcome to the Pseudo Show, Charity. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So to start with, why don't you just tell the uh, tell the audience a little bit about who is Charity Majors? Sure. I am an ops geek from Idaho. I was homeschooled, dropped out of that, dropped out of college. I was a music major. I've been in Silicon Valley since I was 19. I think I've been on call since I was 17. And I kind of have made a specialty throughout my career of being very, you know, early stage, being like the first infrastructure hire that a startup makes after you know, you've got a bunch of software engineers, they've built something, they think it's super cool, they might have some users, and then it's time to grow up, right? And I like doing that. That's great. And that sounds like, so you got your technology start building servers and working with development teams to make it make it better. Yeah, like this was back in the days when colleges would still give students root. <laughs> and <laughs> I, had, I had root for the entire university. I, that, that was a terrible idea. Um, you know, I could have, I could have looked at what all of the college professors were, you know, writing their tests or whatever. But, you know, back then it was it was such a scarcity, right? Anybody who knew anything about computers, you could get hired because if you just like said the words HTML in in like a conf, confident tone of voice, um, we were all just figuring it out for the first time, right? And you know, the bar is a little bit higher now, which I both embrace and find a little bit regretful. <laughs> like. You know, it was such a, it, for a long time, I think tech was like, I mean, it's the only growth industry of my lifetime. And for a long time, it was such a welcoming home for this misfits of, of every stripe. So it, it sounds like technology was kind of, you, you're just drawn to technology. It's not something you really planned for, or not even really fell into. It was just, it seems like it was yeah. there from the beginning. Well, I, I never used computers as a kid. You know, I grew up in rural Idaho. We didn't have those things. But when I got to, college like I had a crush on a boy I started spending time in the computer lab and the boy moved on but like I kept the computers like <laughs> I really enjoyed just like tinkering and and you know setting up my desktop environment and 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 fixing things and I didn't want to be poor like to be completely honest like I saw all the music majors that I was studying with you know they would grow up they'd graduate and they would still be hanging around the the music department teaching because you know they were making minimum wage as 30 40 year olds and i was like nope <laughs> that does not appeal to me <laughs> mm-hmm. well if, if it makes you feel any better i grew up in, in the county outside of kansas city missouri uh, i went to private school uh, up through high school and then when i went off to college i realized uh, i i realized that the world had moved on from dial-up and was actually on uh, was on on cable so that was that was really mind-blowing for me as a freshman in college <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, I never had a a laptop or a computer of my own until I had been working as a sysadmin for three years, four years. It was kind of that was my only access to computers was in, was in the college labs. Part of your background is you worked for several startups. Uh, some you liked, probably some you didn't. Do you have uh, thoughts as to what makes a successful technology startup? Oh boy, do I ever! <laughs> <laughs> I think you might have some insight into this. Especially, I, I, now. I do have many thoughts. Uh, I will like preface this with a caveat that I have not picked winners. Like I, every time that I've been like, "Well, that's a dumb idea," 
that company has gone public, right? Like with Google, you know, Facebook, I, I was offered the first SRE job at Uber. And I was like, that's a dumb idea. <laughs> Back when it was Uber cab, you know, like, so I just take it for what it will. I, I don't claim to have any insight into design or, you know, product, that sort of thing. But I do think like at, at baseline, obviously, you have to have something that people love. I, I would so much rather work on a product that is um, where it's sort of a bimodal distribution where some people really hate it and some people really love it. I would really rather work on a product like that that inspires great passion in either direction than something that people are just like, meh, sure, right? Like you have to have something that people want to give you money for. I'm not a fan of the, the endless VC <laughs> uh, injection model. I think that that just, it, it makes swindlers happy and no one else. But like once you have a product people love, then I think that I think that in tech, we look for reasons to say no to people when we're interviewing and hiring. And I think that's really unfortunate. I think that you need to hire people for their strengths, not for their lack of weaknesses. And and I really and maybe this is because, you know, I started early on and so many people took a risk on me. Like, I, I think that you have to there's this mindset of wanting to be really perfectly sure about the person, which I think leads us to these being these very conservative hiring choices. And I think we should be much more willing to take risks on people. It's always a risk. It is always a risk. No matter how sure you are, you're still taking a risk on each other, just like they're taking a risk on you. Right. And I I think that I'd rather is open the door a bit wider and accept possibly having to have a higher rate of turnover Maybe I don't think that's necessarily true, but but you have to accept the possibility of it. Um, then just like keeping that door like very tight and, and that opening very small in the beginning. I I think that like people, some of the most exceptional people that I've ever worked with look terrible on paper, <laughs> you know. But 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 we took risks on them. I think that that breeds a lot of loyalty too. Like if you if you have a company that's going to survive, hopefully it's because the people that are there they love it. Um, and they and they want to put a lot of themselves into it. One of the best ways that you can engender that kind of loyalty is is to just like invest in people first. I can very much relate to that because one of the biggest risks a, a manager ever took on me was when I made the shift from being generalist server administrator to going Linux full time. So like you said, on paper, I looked like a horrible choice. I didn't have any full-time experience with Linux uh, at, at that particular time. I'd spent some time tinkering with it. Um, so the other server administrators were like, yeah, we've got a thousand Windows servers and six Linux servers. So I was, I always volunteered to take care of the six uh, along with the other, with, with the Windows server. So on paper, I was a terrible choice. I had, I had no certifications. Uh, I'd taken one class, which by the way, I aced <laughs> on Linux. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I mean, that, that was really my, that was really my start into Linux and, and open source. And, and if I ever run into that manager again, I'd, you know, I'd really just give him a hug and say, you changed the trajectory of my life because without him saying this guy looks terrible on paper, but he's got the drive, he's got the energy. We should take a chance on him. I wouldn't have moved into full-time Linux and, and I wouldn't end up where I was today where, I mean, I started on Red Hat Enterprise Linux 5 and here I am talking to customers every day about the advantages of RHEL 8. So I can I can totally relate to to what you're saying. And, and it is a shame that our hiring process is so is so conservative. Yeah. Well, one of the things I'm starting to see a shift in, even people think of IBM and they think suits and if you don't have a college degree, get out. But the former CEO, Ginny Rometty, is always saying, look for the skills, not for the degrees. 
I think that's more important than ever. What, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, like I, I lived in Silicon Valley for a year and it seems like, especially like at the Googles, if you don't have a doctorate, like get out, get out. But you know, what, what's your thoughts on that? Oh, degrees. I mean, obviously as a serial dropout, I'm going to have some thoughts on this. Uh, you know, when I was at Facebook, you know, I was an engineering manager at Facebook for three, or four, three years ish. Um, and <laughs> they pride themselves on the bar. Right. And every time that they anyone proposes, like asking a slightly different question or something, there's all this. But we can't lower the bar, especially especially if you're talking about trying to hire more women or minorities. P.S. I was the only woman engineering manager in the entire production engineering team at the time. One of, I think, three or four women total out of a team of 250. You know, they're like the bar, the bar. But like they ran multiple like spreadsheet regressions trying to like discern any patterns between you know the success, the hires that they made whether they successful or not and the confidence level that the team was who hired them or like how well they did in various questions just trying to sort out any anything that would give them more confidence in any of their process they found zero correlation like they have no evidence that any of the questions that they're asking today are contributing to you know the person being successful there or not and so like, i came in via acquisition would i have made it through the facebook interviewing process probably not was i a good employee I, they seem to think so you know i got promoted twice i got you know all of these you know rave reviews whatever you know, honestly, I think I, I would have made it there as a, you know, senior and above engineer, just great. Would I have made it as a junior engineer? Probably not. You know, I think that, and then they wonder why they, they look so homogenous. Well, it's because they're just, they're, you know, it's, it's a self-perpetuating system that does not lead to excellence. It leads to, you know, just homogeneity and it leads to, but at least, but the, the, the people who are always protesting the hardest were not the managers. They were the ICs. Like they have made it through this difficult challenging interview process and so much of their ego and their identity was wrapped up in it being this very selective place and they didn't want it to become less selective because that would fit their ego i i think that most certification degree whatever it's kind of a protection racket <laughs> they're just trying to keep it scarce so that their skills are more desirable so they can draw a line between them and someone else i think it's burn it all down we don't ask people if they have a degree or not it's completely irrelevant you you mentioned acquisition. You want to you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, I was working at Parse, the mobile backend as a service. I was their first infrastructure hire, um, and I was there for about a year. Um, when I think I was speaking at ChefConf, and they called us all. They called me back to the office for an all hands, first ever all hands. We'd never had one before, and I was like, "What's going on?" And they announced, guess what? We've been acquired by Facebook. And they had like champagne and cake and everything. And the room fell dead silent. <laughs> I think a couple people started crying. <laughs> and they had these like Facebook execs there who were just like, ta-da! And everybody was just like, what? Like, it was, it, it was in retrospect, now it's been years, it, it, it's very funny. Um, at the time, it was a little traumatic. Like, that wasn't what I signed up for. If I wanted to go to Facebook, I would have interviewed at Facebook. You know, I wanted to work at a small startup in San Francisco. But, you know, whatever. I was there from about 20, 2013, 2014 to 2016. They bought us because um, at the time, Facebook platform was having this crisis. They're like, developers hate us. What can we do to make developers love us? In some PM and the platform team told Zuck, they had like two choices. Like there were two two startups that developers loved. There was Docker and Parse, and they should buy one of them. And like 
that was that was the entire mission, right? So they bought a, they bought Parse, they sat us next to the platform team, and we were supposed to like help the platform team figure out how to make developers not hate them. And we're like, great, this is easy. Stop making breaking changes to your APIs. And they're like, well, we're not going to do that. And we're you like, think? well, we've got nothing else for you. <laughs> we bounced around internally for about two years, and then I left, and then they shut the doors on parts, which was really sad. It was a good product. Acquisitions are terrible. Yeah. Uh, they can the be. They can be. I know of about two that I would call successes. I think Salesforce did a good job with Heroku. Mm-hmm. And there's one other that I'm blanking on that I filed away as this was done well. And I think it was also done by Salesforce. But I think the, the thing here is that Salesforce isn't trying to be cool. They know they're not cool. They know that they are deeply uncool. And when they <laughs> acquire someone, they know that the only value they have to that company is money, right? So they keep them kind of at arm's length and they do it gently. They do it slowly. And over the course of the next couple of years, the original startup kids all leave. They're replaced by other people who are attracted to the the you know the more solidity the 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 long terminus the the enterpriseiness of the new you know and so it's very it's very natural and two or three years later they've got much closer like alignment with the mothership and the people who are upset about it are gone right and the people who are happy about it are there and then they can like build something together but like salesforce knows they aren't they aren't cool and so they don't try and ram it down anyone's throat they they know what they're doing mm-hmm. and i i respect that i i probably say another good one so far has been Microsoft and actually their two largest known acquisitions, LinkedIn and GitHub. I feel like they've done a very good job with that. Yeah. Oh yeah. They did all right with both of those. Same thing. They kept, they let them retain their arms length identity, their own building, their own, you know, hiring pipelines. Like they're not trying to like shove them together or smush them together artificially. Like those are, those are acquisitions that are also well done, I would think. So far, that's what's happened uh, between Red Hat and IBM, but I'll uh, <laughs> knock on wood there. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> so, uh, you, know, mo- you know, moving on, I want to talk about your new company. I think uh, th- this is interesting, an interesting space to be in. I mean, you saw, obviously you saw a problem that needed to be solved. So what prompted you to create Honeycomb? Yeah. So around the time that Parse got acquired, I think we had 60,000 mobile apps on on Parse and we were going down like every day. And I was in charge of making us not go down every day. Right. And I was like, my hair was on fire and I, I couldn't, I couldn't stop it. Like, you know, the problem was basically that our API had a fixed pool of worker nodes, right. Um, to which every API request would come. It was written in Ruby on Rails, so we, we were able to develop it really quickly and get it out the door, but it didn't have threads or anything like that, right? So, And then behind it, you had a database in the beginning, and then it grew to be many databases. And these are all shared, right? Shared pools. Uh, so like any time that any one of the backing services or databases started to get a little bit slower, um, within seconds, all of those worker nodes in the pool would fill up with requests that are in progress waiting to something on the back end timeout and so everyone would go down right and i tried everything i tried every tool out there like with monitoring tools it was like i could tell that something was wrong i could tell there was a spike cool um but i couldn't tell what it was right uh, with logs it's like if i thought to log the right thing and then i remember to go look for it maybe i could find it but 
that only works if you know what to look for and you've logged it, right? And and these were all like these weren't known unknown problems. These were unknown unknowns because every time it would be a different app. Every time it would be a different app that's like hitting the iTunes charts or like, you know, there's just a lot of like chaos. Like it could be an app that didn't exist yesterday that today is like taking us down. And this was a hard problem. <laughs> um, the first like glimmer of light that I got was when we started using this tool at Facebook called Scuba, which is this but ugly, like aggressively hostile to users. But like it lets you do one thing really well, which is slice and dice on high cardinality dimensions in near real time. This like we got some data sets flowing into that. And the time it took us to identify like the source of the, the slowness dropped like a rock, like from days like it could be open-ended like we might never figure it out two seconds like not even minutes like every time we could just follow the trail of breadcrumbs just like slice and dice you know there it is right and this made a huge impression on me because you know it helped us get our our house in order the the amount of time that we had spent just firefighting um dropped to you know to almost nothing so when i was leaving facebook I kind of started, I, I, I kind of went, oh, crap. <laughs> I don't know how to engineer anymore without this stuff because it's become so core to, this isn't just like how I get the site back up when the site's down. These are my five senses for production. This is how I know what's going on. This is how I, I this, you know, this is how I, I live and breathe this stuff, right? This is how I decide what to work on. This is how I verify that what I built is doing what I thought it did. Like, this is how I... The idea of going back to just having metrics and logs is like, is like the idea of driving down the street without my glasses on. Like, it's just a bad idea. Like it's, it's, it was so different. Um, And yet when we started, everyone was telling us you're too late. Like it's, this is over, right? Datadog's going public. Everything that needs to be done has been done. Like you should just quit, just stop, like build something else. Christine and I are very stubborn people that really just motivated us <laughs> harder. Um, Good. But like, it was, it was quite a challenge. Like over the first, first year, like just figuring out how to talk about it. Like, yeah, we had to write a storage engine from the ground up. That was challenging, but we knew how to do that. What was hard was trying to figure out how to talk about it. We knew we weren't building a monitoring tool. You know, we knew that we were building something for people who write and ship code and need to understand it richly in production. And it was, you know, I think it was, halfway through the first year that I first Googled the term observability, which wasn't being used in the industry at all. Like there had been like an observability team at Twitter years ago that people knew about, but like we didn't have a meaning. Um, And I Googled it and I realized that observability has this rich heritage in mechanical engineering and control systems theory. And it just means, can you understand by looking at the outside of the system, can you understand the inside of the system? And that's what I had light bulbs just going off my brain. I'm like, oh my God, this is what we're trying to build, right? It's the ability to understand any system state, whether or not you've ever seen it before, whether or not you could have predicted it would happen, like anything that's happening by asking questions from the outside, you should be able to understand it. And, you know, there's all this technical stuff that flows from that, like that you need to like schemas and indexes are, are verboten. You need to have like a columnar store so that you can slice and dice. You need to be able to handle high cardinality, high dimensionality. Like there's all of these prerequisites. But like the key, the key insight was just that nothing out there lets you just ask any question from the outside and under, understand any like inner system state um, because they, they all rely on you having that, you know, knowledge in advance which we just don't have. Like, and I think that it was, be, it, it was a shift from monoliths to microservices that really made this necessary. Because when we had a monolith, when we had the app, right, and the database, all this complexity was sort of 
bundled up inside that one application. And if you needed to like attach a debugger and step through it, well, you could. But now we've blown up the the monolith. You can no longer attach a debugger and step through it because it's going to hop the network every few every few calls, right? And so we've exposed so much of that inner complexity of the application to what is actually operational work and operational tools. So that's what we're building. <laughs> that's awesome. I used to use the term observability when I was working for a healthcare startup a few years ago. Oh, a few years ago. It's almost been 10 years. But there was basically nothing that could help me trace. This was a terrible Java application that ran on Glassfish. Made me want to slip my wrists. But... <laughs> but uh, I could never figure out anything because it was broke. Because like we, it was, I would describe it as sort of, kind of microservices, services-y because one piece because it was broken up so well uh, at the time anyway. And there's nothing I could have back then anyway could help me solve this, solve anything like that because yeah. it, it was uh, yeah. ahead of its time. Yeah, I feel like Parse was also we were ahead of our time, which is kind of why I was encountering these problems. Um, and like, there was no word for microservices at the mm-hmm. time, like microservices weren't existing. We were doing microservices, but we didn't have a term for it. Right. Um, we were doing a lot of things that there weren't really words for. And so we were just sort of on the, the cutting edge of all of these things just sort of fell off a cliff, right? The old tool set, like they're great tools. Like I'm not trying to talk smack about any of the monitoring or logging tools. They're great tools, but they're built for a cognitive model. Um, that's very different than you, than you have to shift to when you have microservices yeah, architecture. Right. So you talked about having to build a storage engine from scratch, but uh, does Honeycomb build a lot off of open source projects? Uh, are there communities that Honeycomb is, is involved with? Everybody does, right? It, <laughs> open source is so baked into the, the landscape. I mean, when's the last time anyone used a proprietary language? <laughs> you know, we're, yeah, we're, we build on... We build in Golang and React for the most part in terms of our languages. But of course, in terms of integrations, we support Java, JavaScript, .NET, um, Ruby, a whole bunch of them. We, of course, run on AWS. um, So we use Debian or Ubuntu, I guess, actually. All All of our integrations are open sourced. And we're, 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 we've just made the decision to double down on the OTEL, Open Telemetry Project. Like that's going to be, I, think, I believe that that's the future of telemetry when it comes to client-side stuff. Because every company that's in the, in the business has been in, has had to hire like a third of their engineering resources have gone towards just building integrations for everything under the sun. And it's this long tail that is just like exhausting and, and like all of that stuff. Wouldn't it be great if you could just like instrument your code once and then you had the ability to try out any of these vendors mm-hmm. you could just like flip it with a switch like from one to the other that's awesome that's the vision that's the goal that's the dream reduce vendor lock in that's awesome exactly exactly there's so much friction between you know because if you spent years like carefully tuning and curating you know all of your instrumentation to work with one vendor, um, then no matter how out of date it is and no matter how much it isn't really fitting your needs, you're not going to redo that work. <laughs> like you're just not. Yeah. It's something I hope is pretty successful. I mean, I've seen other, I mean, not this particular space, but like other foundations try to build standards around stuff like the DMTF. They build, they build the standards around hardware and all the standards like they come out with Dell, Lenovo and HPE all have their own version of that standard. So <laughs> uh, I, yeah. I, I do hope that stuff like that uh, gravitates uh, 
with uh, all your all your competitors as well, because that, 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 uh, that lifts all all boats. Yeah, it does. It forces the vendors to compete on actually solving our users' problems instead of just like sticking them with yeah. <laughs> whatever they've exactly. got. Exactly. We've talked a little bit about this already, uh, and that's uh, culture. So culture is uh, very important to to me. I work for a company that prides itself on its culture. I mean, Red, that that's what Red Hat's famous for is the open culture. But what about its culture? Does it does it pride itself on? Oh, uh, the openness, the matrix uh, culture. Basically, we don't like that. We're pretty. We used to say flat, but you know, it's a matrixed organization. I like to think we're we're we, you know we've taken the good parts of that an open source meritocracy mm-hmm. wherever we can. But I know you know I know the typical Silicon Valley culture. Uh, I lived in San Jose for almost two years. And what do you mean by that? What is the typical Silicon Valley culture? Let's see your typical startup of worship of the founder, like a kind of a cult, like yeah, like really with like that. like Zuck, like with Mark Zuckerberg. Like I feel like I talked to a Facebook employee. There's a lot of uh, cult, uh, lack of a better word, cult of personality, right? Yeah, I, I see that in lots of uh, Silicon Valley startups that I've seen and been around. What differentiates your company from the other Silicon Valley startups? Yeah, that's a good question. I feel like culture is, it's one of those, it's almost a trigger word for me because I feel like people throw it out there so often when they aren't willing to get specific about what they're talking about and they just want to sound like they're on the side of the angels. I, I share your loathing of the founder like worship. Like I was never one of those kids who's like, I'm going to be a founder because I've always really loathed that founder worship. It just, it's very off-putting. It's very off-putting to me. Like a third of the articles that are written about, you know, Silicon Valley seem to be like, as a founder, blah, blah, blah. Or like, <laughs> as all founders know, or speaking as one founder and just like, screw you. Like that does not actually give you the kind of prestige that you think it does. Um, it's it's kind of grotesque. <laughs> <laughs> I could keep going on that train, but let's, let's just cut it out there. Uh, yeah, no, so what's different about us? Like, I, like, ironically, like I've never really been part of the diversity club. Like they don't really like me. Like they, <laughs> the cool kids, the DEI kids on Twitter who, you know, think and talk about diversity a lot. They, I'm not really one of their favorite people. And yeah, Honeycomb is a company that, you know, we're half women, like all of the engineering, like security sales, like we're half women. And I think that's because people, women see it as a place where, you know, they can just come and be a worker and not where their their excellence will be noticed and, you know, appreciated and promoted for and, and where they won't just have that as a burden on their backs. I am kind of a latecomer to the idea that, you know, we have to care about diversity because Christine and I are women, right? Like, so from the very beginning, we have been, I'm not going to talk to you about how, how much uh, less our company is valued at relative to our peers who have orders of magnitude fewer customers and orders of magnitude more white guys. <laughs> but... <laughs> It's there if you care to look, uh, you know, um, and, and that's something that we've we've sort of leaned into and just tried to create a place where, you know, yes, we are we are known for our excellence. Like we, we have a very high performing team um, and we have a very diverse team. And, and those things, they they bolster, they they bolster each other. They don't cancel each other out um, when you create emotional safety for people to do their best work they do their best work. Um, when you make an environment where, you know, you don't have to look or act a certain way to, to get ahead, then it, it's, it's, it's hard work. You know, we've just been re- redoing our company values because 
the first time around. And I like our, our first set of values. Like we published them uh, in a blog post. They are, you know, we hire adults um, and everything's an experiment and, you know, do it with style. <laughs> Fast and close to ride is be- better than, you know, done and perfect. And the last one is feedback as a gift. And, and they're good. They're good values. But the first time that we published them, it was very much, you know, I sat down with my COO at the time and like I talked, free associated, he wordsmithed and we published them. And I've always felt a little uneasy about that. Like they didn't really feel like they were done with the full buy-in of the company. So we're taking the opportunity to revise them. And we've, you know, split the company, we've got 50 people, split them up into five groups of 10 and assign each of them, you know, a value to workshop. And they've, you know, gone through and they've added, you know, scenarios, they've, They've challenged it. They've 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 changed it, um, and you know we're not done yet. So I can't tell you what the outcome is like, but I feel good about the process because I feel like it has democratic legitimacy, right? It has actual buy-in from the people who who hopefully will be using these values. And I'm someone who's very cynical about values. If you talked to me about values up until a couple of years ago, I would have just rolled my eyes and groaned because I associate it with the crap that people put on their websites. Like, we hire the best. We are ethical. We have values. Work long hours. You just you just want to groan because it, we have values and they're the best values. And they just sound like, if they apply to every company, then they're meaningless, right? If there's something that every company should, should have, then they're meaningless. It should be something that is specific to your company and what you're trying to aspire to and what you care about. They should help people make hard decisions. Like, I like the value we hire adults because it means that, you know, when finance is like, oh, we have some extra money in the budget, what are we going to spend it on? Are we going to put it towards people's health care or are we going to put it towards kombucha fountains in the office? Well, we're going to spend it on adult things, right? And like if managers are like complaining, oh, so-and-so isn't working hard enough or I don't see them in their office and they go, they're an adult, they govern their time, not you, right? How's their impact? What's their output like, right? So I feel like if you can't use it to make hard cultural decisions like that, then it is a useless value. You shouldn't have them. (laughs) I like that a lot. I mean, especially now getting your whole company to help build it. I think that's really great. I mean, that that, that actually reminds me of uh, the company I work for. Like everything gets debated. Things change because people yeah. push back and I, and like, you don't see that anywhere else. And I really like hearing that. I mean, that, that's a, that's a, uh, I think that too often leadership management looks at themselves as like the bosses mm-hmm. and that's just wrong. Like I couldn't work for a company like that. Like I, you, you do not get to tell me what to do. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I'm not going to tell other people what to do. It's my job to make sure that uh, there's a vision that we we all think is important, that we're all agreed upon. It's my job to convince people, yep. to persuade them, to coax them, right? Not to like give them assignments. Like the, no company exists except for the people who show up every day mm-hmm. and create it. You have to create it every single day from scratch, which means that, you know, all of the power should rest in the people who show up every day, like, and bring their labor and their caring, um, and the rest of us are overhead. That's quite a statement to make, and not not many companies out there think that way. So the fact that, that there are companies like Red Hat, like Honeycomb, that have values that actually you see them actively called in to conversations is, is, is pretty rare. I, I would say two out of the half dozen or so companies that I've worked for uh, in, in my career have really been that way. I mean, most of the companies I've worked for it's kind of that whole, yeah, we have values. They're on our website. 
and, and you can ask some of the longest tenured people there, what are the values? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's a competitive advantage. Definitely. It really is. Honeycomb is always, we have hired way above our, <laughs> our batting level. You know, like people like Liz Fong Jones coming to work for us a year and a half ago. Like she was so far out of our league, you know, um, but like people get to a point in their career where they're just fed up with being told what to do and bossed around. And they either go start something for themselves or if you're lucky, you can create an environment that people feel drawn to. And I, I hope that we can keep it because I want to create the kind of company that I myself would go work for. And there are a precious few of those. That's awesome. I, I, it sounds like you're creating something that's, uh, to me, that's really important. That's why I asked uh, the, the question. I mean, like uh, I've worked for two companies that uh, they, like, if you really looked right down, down to it, they had I, basically identical values quote unquote and their values di- those values didn't reflect what was happening in the organization it's better to not say anything than to say something and and have it be make people cynical exactly mm-hmm. our call to action today is sponsored by none other than bitwarden bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals teams and businesses to store share and sync sensitive data you can go to bitwarden.com/dln to check out their amazing service I don't know about you, Eric, but I'd be lost without my YubiKey. One of the features I love about using Bitwarden is their integration with my hardware token. With the pro features, I can store my passwords in my Bitwarden vault and tap my YubiKey for the second factor. It definitely doesn't get any better than that. Check out bitwarden.com slash DLN and get started for free. If you want to get more security with tools like your YubiKey, you'll have to sign up for the premium edition. It only costs $10 a year. That's right, just $10 a year. Thank you to Bitwarden for sponsoring the Pseudo Show and the entire Destination Linux network. So kind of shifting gears on, on that thought of being at a company you want to work for. You know, as, I, as I mentioned, we we decided to have this interview because uh, of something you published, and, and I saw it re, republished on, uh, on on the new stack. It was, it was about the future of operations. I mean, we can all agree that there is some terrible branding around concepts in operations nowadays. Things like serverless and no ops. Yeah. I mean, it's it's terrible branding, and it's giving the wrong impression of what operations is and what it's supposed to accomplish. Would you like to tell some of our listeners about the article and what kind of led you to, to, to writing it? Yeah, I, I think that I was I was writing it from, it's just been on my mind a lot. I love being an ops engineer. I'm very proud of it. I think that I have a lot of concerns about where the industry is going. I don't want to see what happened to testing happen to ops, where, you know, it used to be there was this thriving, you know, testing, test engineers things, and then you know, and then one day software engineers are like, well, actually, we should write the test. And then like whoa, most of the QA people just vanished. You know, they're, they're staging a little bit of a comeback. I mean, there's a, you know, a different brand of test engineers who are much more, you know, expertise and just like helping software engineers to do a better job of testing their stuff. But I, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see ops engineers get wiped out like that. And I think that we're going to have to shift with the times a little bit. And I think that this is a good thing. I think that all of these are good trends and they're ones that we should embrace. I can see how some of it can be scary, some of it can be terrifying, because we are asking ops people to do more with less, but that's what we do. That's what we do as engineers. That's what we do as people who create things. A lot of people don't think of ops as a creative profession, right? They don't think of us as being people who build things, who make things, but we do. It's just that we build systems. We don't write code so much, except we write code in the service of building systems. Uh, but code that is written without an awareness of the system that it's going to write it, 
that it's going to run on is bad code. <laughs> yeah, so I feel like there's this this shift in the industry. Um, it used to be that infrastructure was basically synonymous with operations. If you were an ops engineer, it meant that you built infrastructure, right? If you look at the trends in the industry, uh, they are trending towards technology companies doing less and less and less infrastructure work. This is a good thing. Like I, most of the companies that I've worked at, up to 90% of all of the engineering cycles that that company had went towards infrastructure, not towards their core business differentiators, right? That's unsustainable. That is wasteful. That is not a good use of anyone's time. Um, and, and over time, what we're seeing is, you know, when I started being an ops engineer, I was running mail, DNS, you know, doing operating systems, doing networking, doing all the things, right? Well, now Google does my mail. Cool. Somebody else does my DNS, probably Amazon. Amazon takes care of my operating systems and, and you know, makes machine images for me. Um, you know, all of these things that I used to do are being replaced by somebody who's doing it better, more efficiently, more cheaply than I was. There's part of me that sometimes feels a twinge of loss. I loved running mail systems. I loved training my spam assassin and my clamming. You're like the only person I've ever talked to that liked <laughs> running mail. <laughs> I did. I love running mail. And, and I and I, I was actually the software engineer who added the first um, spam filters to Qmail way back in the day. Uh, I, I love mail. I still there's no nothing better than repping your mail spool. Like there's no no search that even compares to being as awesome as grep for your mail spool. I will die on that hill. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh <But>. boy. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't mean that I still want to run mail at work, right? I have now slowly come around to the position that there are better things I could be doing with my time and energy, yeah. right? I, I'm moving up the stack. Um, I'm doing more with less because when's the last time that I got paged in the middle of the night to go down to the colo and flip the power switch on the MySQL primary? Thank God I don't have to do that anymore. Thank God Amazon does that for me. And I can just like use their APIs to flip the switch for me, right? This is a better for me and my health. It's better for everyone, right? And so I think that we're going to continue to see this squeezing out of infrastructure because every tech company should be in the in the business of trying to do as little infrastructure as possible so that they can spend as much of their core engineering cycles as they can on their core business differentiators, right? That's what they're paying them for. That's what moves the business forward. It's a good trend for everyone. So for the perspective of us ops engineers, I think this means that we need to Look at this as a fork in the road, right? Either we take the fork, either we double down on infrastructure, in which case, God bless, this yeah. this stuff still has to get built and run, <laughs> right? It's going to be built and run people who are solving the category problems, right? Whether it's like pager duty, solving paging, right? Category problem for the world, great, right? Or if it's like, you know, a honeycomb or a Grafana or somebody who's doing the observability stuff, right? We're solving this as a category problem for the world, great. Right. Someone will give us money and then they can use, you know, their their engineers on something that is core to their business model. Um, so either you can take that infrastructure road and double down on it or so I do think that there is going to continue to be a role for ops people in all of these other tech companies that don't do their own infrastructure because our skill set, what we are so good at is tending and curating these socio-technical systems, seeing the big picture, right? Both the people and the systems and the tools that we use to, inter to interact with those systems and helping people understand where the bottlenecks are, 
right? Investing in, you know, the entire deployment system, you know, investing into CICD, getting, fulfilling the promise of continuous delivery. Like, it's like we got to CI and then we stopped. <laughs> Most companies do not do CD. They just say CICD and they're like, oh, we do it. But they don't. And there's a lot of win to be won there just by like making it actually CD, right? All of this stuff, you know, this deep bench of systems knowledge that we have lends itself so well to helping companies understand how to not do their own infrastructure as much as possible. And in the rare cases where they do need to, right, like do, treating it like a surgical strike, right? Like this is a place where no one else can do this. We need to build this ourselves. I guarantee you it's going to be worth it. Or this blue hair is necessary. We need to build it. Here's why. And then like tending to that over time. So those, those are the two choices I see. You do infrastructure or you become kind of the consultant to the software engineers, right? And you'll do some building, sure. Um, like most software engineers do not have the ability to architect systems and you do. Like you know how to build systems. You smell it. You feel it in your gut when they've made a bad decision. You can just point to it and go, this is going to be, this is going to be painful. Like let's, let's figure out how to make this better. That is a, that is a job that lends itself very well to our skill set. But we do have to like get ourselves out of the model of the, of the thinking that we're going to be empire building there because it's not our jobs to build empire in that sort of environment. It's our job to keep that system lean. It's our job to keep that system using as few people as possible, doing as little infrastructure as possible, right? So there's a little bit of an inversion there that I think the ego kind of has to get adjusted to. But like, we can find pride in that. I can find pride in that. I, I used to joke of r- running infrastructure, I'm going to automate myself at a job and I'm, I'm going to be proud of it because having consistency in infrastructure or even just consistency in just configuration. I mean, like was using CI to test my server automation before it was cool. And now it's, uh, if you don't do that, like to uh, essentially QE or uh, Ansible playbooks or your, uh, or your puppet manifests, it's, uh, yeah, it's frowned upon. <laughs> so, uh, and same with uh, building uh, out, with what Honeycomb does, building out your your integrations with uh, your with observability, et cetera. Like that, I think that's the most important thing to identify yeah. the best place. Focus your work. Yeah, highest impact for yeah, and I and I think that this is where um, something that I've been calling vendor engineering has been become more more important because when you when you buy a solution, your job is, isn't done right. It's not like woohoo packaged off the shelf, you know, cool, problem solved. When you're dealing with software, there's this very critical integration point, right? Where you need to, you know, you need to maybe write some helpers for your other teams internally. You need to write some libraries, some modules, build some test cases, document the use cases, write some examples, you know, write a common thing so that so that people go from team to team um, so there's consistency, right? So that you're using it correctly. Maybe you need to build the relationship with the vendor so that you can lean on them to get some features that you really need for your for your team, right? There's a, it's this it's this complex it's this tool toolkit that is technical and social. Social technical is like my favorite word now, right? But like it's it's a really powerful spot to sit. I think that like managers need to start rewarding that, like instead of like just promoting people who write new databases from scratch, like the world does not need more databases, right? Promote people who, who use their, their, their skills to leverage others for the benefit of the business and the organization. Like that, that's a mental shift that goes along with this that, that I think is really important. Basically, it is okay to go buy an off-the-shelf database. 
<laughs> it is okay. It's okay to go use an off-the-shelf automation system. Every time you have to write new code, you should view that as a personal failure. Because code is debt. As soon as you've written it, it's something that has to be maintained. It is legacy debt. Um, so you should be sure that it is worth it before you do. And this is where I've always loved some of the best engineers, best software engineers that I've ever known have come from ops. I think that we carry with us this attitude of, yes, I can write code, but I don't want to. I'm only going to do it if it's really necessary, right? Whereas a lot of software engineers are just like, wee, software, code, 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 code. And then somebody's got to come along and sweep it all up, right? I appreciate the scarcity mindset because yeah. I think it leads to more maintainable systems. That it does. Absolutely. It does. <laughs> You know, throughout my career, I, I used to tell folks that um, I used to tell managers I, I was a really good systems engineer because I'm inherently lazy. It takes quite a bit to get me to do something. I, I had some that were that, that tried to change my mind and say that, no, you're just highly productive. It's like, no, I'm I'm lazy. If I if I can write three lines of code that do this for me, <laughs> I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> I, I respect that. <laughs> Now that our listeners have gotten a chance to get to know you a little bit today, what's one tip you would want technologists to know, whether they're starting their career or feel trapped in a world that's going, you know, quote, no ops? Uh, and I, I I use that term very, very lightly. What, what's something that you would like someone in in that position to to know and, and, uh, and be able to act on? Well, generally speaking, if you're not happy in your job, please quit. Like, this is an embarrassment of riches that we have. Like, we... We are so fortunate to be in an industry where our skills are in demand, they're highly compensated, people are looking for our skills. You know, I think that the there's this tendency that of everyone to stay a little bit too long in their jobs, uh, long past when they're not happy and it's not healthy anymore. Um, so I would give them a little kick in the pants. I also feel like one of the biggest, the heaviest lifts that we have in front of us is people have just kind of internalized this fact, I use the term lately, that working on computers just has to suck. It just has to be crappy. Like it just has to be, you know, we just have to waste half of our time trying to figure out what's even going on. And and I really want to raise the bar for people because that's not actually true. I feel like most people's systems are like this hairball that the, that the cat coughed up that nobody's ever understood. And we ship more code every day that nobody understands to the hairball that nobody's ever understood. And then we wonder why it's a mess. It's just like, it's a mess because we made it a mess. It's not a mess because it has to be a mess. At Honeycomb, I think it's reasonable to ask an engineer who works on a 24-7 service to be woken up for their code once or twice a year. That's it. And I think that I think that's true for everyone, ops or software. Like, once or twice a year, you should be willing to, you should want to support your code. You should want to be giving your users a good experience. Um, and once or twice a year is reasonable. And I believe that any system out there should be able to got to that point, right, where, where it's anyone who's working on it gets but like if you're every time you're getting paged you're, every time you're on call you're getting paged constantly that is serious like that that's as serious as a heart attack that will kill teams that will burn people out if you're not being given the time for you know if engineers are being forced to work on the product feature 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 and not actually build the systems to a point where they're conducive with human flourishing um that's a problem that is a real problem. If you can change their mind, you should. If not, you should leave because that's not right. Yeah. I, I feel like you and I have known each other for a while because what you just said is exactly what got me out of operations and into a sales role. Mm. Uh, the last systems administrator position I had, the culture was so combative. Mm. There was not just a wall built between dev and ops, but I mean, there was, there was mounted weapons on that wall oh. and trying to get anything done was awful. Yeah, sure, my, my on-call rotation was only one week out of every 10, but I mm. dreaded that week. It was miserable. I was you're just on one call after another after another. And as the operations guy, it's like I, I don't I don't know what the app is trying to do. I yeah, I've got the console right here, but 
this doesn't mean anything to me because I'm I'm just right. I'm the OS guy. You know, if if our colo goes down, I know who to call and say, hey, you know, what would you walk down to our rack and and kick the server in the face? Well, that's the other thing. Nobody should ever get an alert that they aren't that they don't know what to do about right. and don't aren't empowered to do it. This is why I think we've we've, been, we've had this big sea change over the past, you know, five years where, you know, before that it was like software engineers on our right. call. Like that's just like that was just a shocker to everyone. Like nobody was in favor of it. This was horrifying. Now it's like we've all we've all become to, you know, accept that. Mm-hmm. Actually, this is the only way to build better systems is to have that tight feedback loop where the people who know how to fix it are the ones who are getting paged. They're the ones who know how to fix it and they're empowered to fix it and they can fix it quickly. Ops has a well-deserved reputation for masochism. I will totally <laughs> hop to that. But like, this is not about just trying to like make software engineers join us there. This is about legitimately, this is the only way that we make it better so that nobody has to go through that. Yeah, what that, that healthcare startup I referred to, that like I, I was the ops guy, but the developers knew that if there was any problem that that with a with a release, they owned the pieces, not me, because it's their code that took down production. Again, ahead of its time, but it was I thought it was I, I always said if I ever ran my own operations organization, is that that's what I would insist on, is that the operations team shouldn't be the only ones woken up at 2 a.m. because Unless it's their screw up because of yeah. an ops config problem, right? <laughs> this is like for a long time, it wasn't possible to dis- differentiate or disambiguate between the two. I think that one of the shift between things about the shift between like monoliths yeah. to microservices is that now it's become much more clear and much more possible to differentiate between who's actually responsible for this, which is good. Yeah, that that yeah, definitely. Like slight it went with the monolith, like it was a sort of delineation between the application side and the database, right? But now mm-hmm. it's definitely okay. This is you can see see a clear delineation now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, because because back in those days, <laughs> you you'd get paged out because a database server was using up all of its RAM. And that was causing some issues with the database. And so, of course, operations would get called and that was that was how you were paged out. Oh, well, this the server has no has no available memory. Well, it doesn't have any available memory because the DBA who wrote the query that is currently running on the database didn't check it. <laughs> and so they're home asleep. And now I have to try and figure out, well, we could just add more RAM to it. We could reboot the server. I mean, that's that's all I got for you. You need right. to call the DBA. <laughs> right. This is this is a problem with tooling too. Like, if we don't have the tools, you, we can't just use humans as human as like cannon fodder. We have to actually have the tools to be able to understand what's happening and and make good actions and you know make a good course of action. Otherwise, you're just using the humans' blood and sweat and tears to like make yourself feel good. <laughs> about your coverage it's not actually yeah did you have any closing thoughts anything you wanted to share hmm. you know i feel like the last decade or, you know, the first decade of devops is very much about ops people you must learn to write code you know just like Rawr. and we're all like okay okay you know message received and we did right i feel like the next the next decade or so which we're already well into is, is much more the pendulum swinging the other way okay software engineers your turn right your turn to learn to write code and services that are operable your turn to learn to operate your services, be a call for them, be responsible for them. And I don't think that this is a bad thing. Like what we all crave out of our work is is what? It's autonomy, mastery, and impact. I think that creating these feedback loops that, that give developers a very tight feedback 
you know, pages them when they've done something, done something wrong so they know right away and they can fix it. It is a gift. Like it's something that is, it aligns you much more closely with, with your users and their pains and their wants and their, their needs. And I think it has the possibility to be like better for everyone. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Charity, for, for joining us. Uh, it was great having you and, uh, and really look forward to reading more of your articles. If there's anything newsworthy at, uh, at Honeycomb, just give us a shout and we'll have, we'll have to have you All back right. on the show real soon. I'll do that. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate you coming on. I really do. Oh, thanks for having me. It's really this nice. is it's always it's great to see uh, an ops person making software that's really impactful and I really appreciate it. There aren't enough ops co-founders. There really aren't. The fact that we invested in operation stuff early on, it continues mm-hmm. to pay off. Like we still use that I was building like three and a half years ago and and we don't get paged. Mm. Like my engineers don't get paid. That's awesome. <laughs> there we have this fast, fast growing platform, you know, and, and and it's completely compatible with, you know, even the front end engineers are in the on call rotation and they can figure it out, they can solve things and nobody gets woken up more than like once mm, a that's year. Amazing. That's awesome. That's awesome. So Where where's that cool. kind of thinking when I was in operations? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. As always, your feedback is welcome. Head on over to sudo.show slash discuss. If you'd like more of Brandon and I, you can find it over at sudo.show and on social media at sudoshowpodcast. You can catch more awesome content over at our network partners, destinationlinux.network. The DLN website and the merch store have both received huge facelifts and now include new products for the network and our own pseudoshow mug. Brandon, anywhere else you'd like to send folks? You can follow me on Twitter at dbrandonjohnson or my website open-tech.net. And you can follow me at ITGuyEric or on ITGuyEric.com. Remember, the Pseudo Show is your place for all things enterprise open source. Until next time.